Hello, hello, and welcome to Non-Technical, where I, your host, Alexis Gay, interview influential folks from tech, media, business, and beyond about everything except their resumes. Today, we have Helena Price-Hambrecht, the co-founder and co-CEO of House, though she's done a lot of other super impressive, really interesting things prior to that, which admittedly, I'm not going to ask her that much about. Helena, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. How's it going? Good, I'm stoked about this. Me too, we have so much in common already. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of Non-Technical is brought to you by SecureFrame. SecureFrame helps organizations get enterprise ready by streamlining SOC 2 and ISO 27001 compliance so you can get compliant in weeks, not months. If getting SOC 2 or ISO 27001 compliant is something that's been sitting on your to-do list, but you feel like you don't have the time or resources to make it happen, SecureFrame is for you. And even if that level of compliance isn't something you think you need today, hopefully if things go well, you'll need it tomorrow, right? So why wait? Well, cost, sure. But SecureFrame customers save an average of 50% on their audit costs and hundreds of hours of their time. SecureFrame's team of compliance experts and auditors are happy to help answer any questions and give you more information on SOC 2 or ISO 27001 compliance. So schedule a demo today at secureframe.com. Helena Price Hambrecht is the co-founder and co-CEO of House. She and her husband, Woody, started House because they knew alcohol could be better than the corporate options available to most consumers. It can be natural, made with transparency and whole ingredients. Prior to House, Helena was a Silicon Valley creative who helped shape brands like Facebook, Fitbit, Google, Instagram, Microsoft, Nike, Pinterest, Slack, Square, Twitter, and Uber. Her work has been featured on ABC, CNN, The New York Times, Fast Company, Fortune, Glamour, The Guardian, and Inc. Helena, welcome to Non-Technical. Thank you. That is almost embarrassing to hear you say all those things. Oh, I love it. You've been busy. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm so excited to talk to you for so many reasons, obviously. But one is that we connected online recently after I talked about low alcohol aperitifs in a Twitter video. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, I've made it. (laughs) Were you surprised? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've seen your work, you know, I've seen you around the internet. And I was like, oh man, this girl, she just gets it. She moved to San Francisco and she knows the language. And then when I was like, oh my God, we are the language. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, obviously I pulled that from real life. I've heard a lot about low alcohol aperitifs. I've experienced low alcohol aperitifs and I'm certainly not alone. So it made perfect sense. They had to get a little shout out. (laughs) So funny. It was great. Yay. I'm so glad. And on top of that, I learned recently that you're spending some time hanging out on a ranch in Sonoma, which I think sounds like what a beautiful life. We love that. Yeah. You know, I certainly can't complain. It's still Mm -hmm. bizarre to me that that's where I ended up in life. I grew up in rural North Carolina and I literally moved across the country so that I wouldn't marry a farmer with an (laughs) F-250. And lo and behold, I married a farmer with an F-250 and I'm on a farm. Wow. Two questions. What is an F-250? A truck. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Oh my God. You are not from the South. I'm not from the South. I'm from Connecticut. And then I lived in New York. And then I lived in San Francisco. (laughs) Oh, we're gonna we're gonna have to take you for a ride in a truck bed. Honestly, that sounds great. I also there are chickens on your farm, right on your ranch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's farm stuff going on. That's amazing. You said you moved from North Carolina to not marry a farmer. And then you did. What kind of farmer did you marry? A grape farmer. A grape farmer. Honestly, that's got to be like top three farmers, right? 
Well, I mean, I think it's very relevant to most of our interests. The grapes become wine and then you drink the wine and it's a beautiful cycle. It's a beautiful harvest. Every time I've gone to a vineyard, I'm always in awe by how gorgeous all the grapes just look. I mean, obviously the taste is great, but what an incredible place to be able to experience. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, I I'm able to say that because I don't have to farm it, you know, like that's a good point. That is a good point. Farming is hard, very glamorous looking. And it's like, I think it's like Mm. every tech bro's dream to, you know, like make a bunch (laughs) of tech money and then magically have a vineyard and farm grapes. And they have no idea. Like you think building a startup is hard? Go try (laughs) and farm grapes. Good luck, my friends. That is hard. Wow. It does sound hard. It sounds very finicky. You have to be very precise. Is that right? It's more of an art. Like you Mm. are just constantly paying attention and you're like nursing the soil and you're like, Mm. you know, taking care of them like they're little pets, you know, like each plant, you're like giving it love. And then you're watching the weather and you're monitoring the soil and you're monitoring the levels of sugar in the grapes and figuring out exactly the right moment to pick them. And then you're making wine. And even that's an art because ideally Mm. you're just letting the grapes do its thing. But that requires a lot of watching to make sure that it's fermenting in the right way. It's art and science. It's a lot more work than perhaps the glamorous Instagram photos might make it look. Okay, so Helena, tell me this. How did you spend your last day off? I have no idea when I had a day off. (gasps) Really? I have no idea. But maybe, I don't know. I guess everybody has to change their definition, right? Like I had a child. Oh, recently? Three years ago. Okay, yeah, sure. What is a day off? I'm not sure. We're not talking about work, but we had an idea for that company that we did when our kid was three months old. So we basically had two babies at the same time. Oh my God, on top of the grapes. On top of the grapes. And so I don't know, but if I were to Hmm. fantasize about what I would do on a day off, oh my God. Yeah, totally. I think I would sleep a lot. I love Mm. sleeping. I love Mm -hmm. it so much. Are you a nap person? I used to be. Oh, yeah. I would sleep 10 hours a night and take a nap if I could. (gasps) Mm -hmm. Okay, when you would nap, it sounds like you don't nap now, but when you would nap, were you a couch nap or a bed nap person? I, no, I need a blanket on me. Okay. I need some coverage. Yeah. I get cold. And if I'm below a certain temperature, there's just no chance. I'm going to go to sleep and I'll just go into chills and, you know, it's not, it's not a good situation. So I think I need like a real fluffy comforter. Okay. I agree entirely. I would say though, that I'm like a firm couch nap person. If I'm taking a nap, I want it to be on a couch, but I also want a really cozy blanket. There's something about taking a nap on a bed that my brain equates to sleeping for the night. It doesn't work for me. Well, maybe that's my problem because I hear about these like 20, 30 minute naps and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I literally don't know what that means. My naps are four hours long. (laughs) That's so funny. I mean, 20 minutes, honestly, what's the point? Have an espresso, but you know, a good like 40 minute hour long nap that's going to be right on the couch. I also, I don't know. I like having a little background noise. I think I just need my body to know like you are not about to fall asleep for eight hours, you know? See, I'm just like, treat yourself. If your body wants the four, give it the four. The the world will adjust. Helena, that's beautiful. I should probably take that to heart. (laughs) Embroider it on something and hang it on your wall. Yeah, embroidered on the cozy comforter blanket that I can then use for my naps. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been known as the something person, like the math girl in high school or anything like that or college or at work? 
I did get a superlative in high school. Oh, really? It's kind of cringy when I think about it. Most likely to be a millionaire, which is very funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's funny. But that's kind of funny to me because mm-hmm. I, like, did not care about school at all. So really? I don't know where people got that idea. Where do you think that came from? I mean, I've always had side hustles. Okay. So maybe they just saw me as a hustler who, like, didn't care about conventional stuff. I have to go and find people I went to high school with because I've lost touch with most of them and be like, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Were you very entrepreneurial in high school? I wouldn't say that because I'm from a very small town. Like I didn't even know what entrepreneurial, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do. People don't really leave where I'm from. So really, no. Uh, Hmm. So I think I just kind of didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I remember I have one distinct memory and this is partially because I was raised by an immigrant. And so I'm not Mm. from, from North Carolina. Oh, sure. And I I had a little bit of exposure to the rest of the world. I remember walking to the pep rally when I was 15, you know, in the line and just being like, I must leave this place. Really? You have that clear memory of that moment? Yeah. It's like, I got to, I got to get out. And I was 15. So I knew I had several years to go, but eventually, you know, at 21, I finally moved across country. Wow. And you said that your family immigrated here? My mom. Your mom. Yeah. So I'm like literally half Norwegian, half redneck. Okay. <laughs> I A don't classic know if 50 there are 50 more. split. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, my mom's from Norway. She's the only one who moved to the States. Everybody else is in Norway. And my dad is from rural North Carolina. Wow. What a combo. Yeah. It's super weird. The two family sides don't intermingle. It was not a fit. Really? But I'm this very interesting mix of two cultures that could not be more opposite. Truly. Are there any traditions that your family has or developed growing up that are a blend of the two cultures? No, I think I'm just a blend. You're the blend. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think my mom tried to shun her background because I think there was a lot of pressure, which I know a lot of immigrant families feel to assimilate. Mm. Right. So like she didn't teach me Norwegian. I didn't Mm. learn any of the Norwegian nursery rhymes. We didn't celebrate any Norwegian traditions. I only Mm. got to see them when I'd go visit family Mm -hmm. and I'd be like, this is so cool. Everybody eats fish eggs on their toast. Like, yeah, sure. Oh my God, this is amazing. So I loved Norwegian culture and thought it was the coolest place on earth. And then the South is the South. I'll add, I spent my first six years in Indianapolis, actually, before I moved down to the South to join my dad's family. So I knew that the world was different than the South. So by the time I got to the South, I was like, I'm a little skeptical of all this. I don't think... Because in the South, they're like, this is the way things are. Right. And I was able to be like, I don't think that's true. I think, (laughs) hmm, (laughs) that's good. So you had some perspective even growing up. Maybe that is in part what informed you at such a young age, 15, being like, this is perhaps not always going to be for me. I think you're right. Is there anything your family did growing up that at the time you thought was normal and then later you learned was extremely strange? Yes. (laughs) It's funny. I'm like, how many layers? We only have so much time, Alexa. Right. (laughs) We can schedule a follow-up one-on-one, you and I. (laughs) And it's also funny because, and I'm sure you relate to this, like you're a person who's somewhat visible online. I think people Mm. think that they know so much about me and, oh, I know all about Helena's chickens. And I'm like, oh no, people don't know. People don't know anything. I'm an open book. It's just most people don't ask me the questions that you're asking me. My dad was a real character. Now I look back and I'm like, 
holy shit. He's a man in the South. Mm -hmm. He grew up really, really poor. First person in his lineage to go to college. Wow. Ended up becoming a lawyer. I don't even know how good he was at that, but he was a hustler. Mm -hmm. Yes. To the degree where I think he learned how to be a hustler from like Hollywood in the movies. So he did a lot of very odd kind of cliched things. He Hmm. wore makeup, like orange Donald Trumpy makeup. And he had a really intense home gym and tanning beds in his living room. Really? And would maniacally work out and tan to where he was like a deep orange brown. And he was super ripped. And he wore 20 gold chains and walked around in a speedo. And like all these things where I'm like, oh, your dad didn't do that? Okay. <gasps> wow. I'm getting like Arnold Schwarzenegger vibes. Think like Rocky Balboa. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. He wanted to be like an Italian mob boss or something and totally. larger than life. And, yes. and that's kind of like, that was his thing. Mm. I would invite my friends over mm-hmm. and I probably like at the time knew, okay, I think my dad's different than your dad's, but yeah. now I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe what did my friend's parents think? Wow. So this wasn't something that was common in your neighborhood or your town. This was something that set your dad apart. I don't think this is common anywhere. Period. Now now that I've had the chance to see the rest of the world, no. Wow. Did he carry that over into his law practice? Was that sort of his persona at work as well? I don't know. And it's funny because he passed away when I was 19. So I don't Mm -hmm. have the opportunity to ask him this stuff. Yeah. at some point, I hope to be able to be in touch with some people that knew him. Yeah. Just to be like, what the hell was going on? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't really maintain a lot of friendships. Sure. If I really look back, I'm like, I think this guy was kind of a grifter and probably mm. like didn't make a lot of friends along the way. But I sure. don't know. I don't know. And I was like pretty embarrassed of him growing up. Mm. He wasn't the most pleasant person to be raised by. So I wasn't really that interested in learning about Mm. him for a long time. But now that I'm older, I'm like, what a fascinating person. I am curious to know more now. I'd be particularly interested in like a business associate. You know, what did they think was going on? Oh, my God. I truly don't know. I truly don't know. (laughs) I hope that you can find out one day. Keep me posted. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is there a fad that you look back on participating in that now makes you a little cringy? That could be like a fashion thing, a workout thing, anything cultural? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I have tried on most aesthetics over the course really? of my lifetime. And maybe, mm. I don't know why. I think mm. it was like part of me just discovering who I am. Like I've had every hair color. Yeah. I've had every hair length and hairstyle. Really? I have gone through phases of like aggressively spray tanning myself like my father because uh-huh. I was a little self-conscious. Uh, you know, I'm kind of like corpse colored uh, and I wasn't <laughs> into that for a while. Looking back, my more embarrassing aesthetic phase was probably during college hmm. where I kind of went into this like pretty hardcore emo phase. Oh, really? And I had the swoopy bang. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, of course I know. And this was yeah. college in the South? Yeah, this was NC State in Raleigh, even though I didn't really go to college that much, but I was technically enrolled there. Yeah, I had the swoopy bang. I had black hair. Really? I also had a blonde swoopy bang for a time. Oh my God. And then I had this for a time, which included the swoopy bang. I had this like bob that yeah. had like the sh- kind of short layers in it that yes. you would either see at the hardcore show or yes. it was the let me talk to your manager 
like yes. Southern woman haircut. Yeah. So that was bad. That was really bad. I'm sure at the time it was fun. I got so many compliments. People thought I was so edgy. Yeah. People thought I was like, you know, such a trendsetter. And I'm like, oh man, nope. No, I was not. You said you didn't spend a lot of time going to college, even though you were enrolled. What were you spending all that time doing? Working. Really? Yeah. I like got a head start on my career kind of on accident. Mm. So when, and again, I'm like, how many paths do you want to go down? (laughs) But dad died. And that same year, my mom actually got kicked out of the house by her husband. Oh, no. I had to learn very quickly that any sort of financial dependency mm-hmm, that I may have mm-hmm. had on a parent dissolved because my mom made like $11 an hour. Sure, she wasn't sure. going to be able to support me in any way. So I had mm. to get a job and I got a job in the club. It was like actually kind of amazing. It had three shifts. There was like the luxe brunch, like the fancy brunch yep, that turned totally. into fancy, fancy steak dinners, which then turned into the club. And yes. that's where I work. What did you do there? I served food and alcoholic beverages till like wow. four in the morning every night. <gasps> wow, yeah. wow, wow. And that was like the beginning of my several years working in bars. And yeah. that was kind of like my exposure to the world and kind of how I built the beginning of my career, which is funny now that I work in booze again. Never thought that would happen, but I learned about the world by serving booze to other people. And I think to me, that was like one of the coolest phases of my career because Mm -hmm. you get to meet so many people. It's so humbling. I think it just should be required, you know? I was actually going to say the exact same thing. I think everybody should have to do, I would say at least six months of some sort of service job. When I was in high school for a summer, I worked in a candy shop where I also scooped ice cream. In college, at one point I was a server and I also was a bartender. Some of the skills I've learned through doing jobs like that, I've taken with me through every facet of my life. I think that it would benefit everybody to have that experience. I think it would drive empathy. I think it teaches you a lot about the world and I totally aligned with you on that. Oh yeah, it's interesting now being in Silicon Valley where, you know, some people have worked in restaurants, some people haven't. and Some have not. <laughs> being out at, you know, a dinner or something like that and noticing mm. when people treat service industry mm-hmm. poorly and I'm like, oh, okay, we're not the same. That is such a deal breaker for me if somebody treats a service person or really anybody else that we're encountering in a negative way or in like an I'm better than you way. It's like a switch is flipped in my head. I can't. Yeah. I'm like, no, I know that sounds extreme, but it just fills my whole body with this like, oh, horrible feeling. I've also had people express shock to me that I did that. Oh, wow. I'm really surprised to hear that. I am so surprised that <laughs> and you needed like, money. Oh, my I God. Know, and I was like, oh, <laughs> Oh, yes. Okay. Wow. We're super aligned on that. Tell me this. What is the tiniest hill that you're willing to die on? So something inconsequential that you would really go to bat for. Do what you say you're going to do. Ooh. Mm-hmm. It's so simple. Yes. yes. It's so simple. But I have gone so much further, I think, than I should have in life. Mm. Simply because I do what I say. But yeah, I think more importantly, if you don't think you're going to do it, then don't say it. I totally agree with both what you said and that converse that you just expressed, because there can be a lot of talk. But ultimately, 
it is the action and, and the result of the action that counts a lot of the time. So that, I think what you just said makes a lot of sense, especially you can apply it to really big things, to medium-sized things. What is like the smallest application of that philosophy that drives you crazy? Like if someone says they're going to meet you for coffee at one o'clock and then they're at 105, does that bother you? Or like, what's the teeniest iteration of that? Literally time. time. Really? Being on time. It is, you know, I'm not saying I'm right in thinking and <laughs> being like super triggered by that. But yes. to me, like, don't waste my time. Do not totally. waste my time. Time is yep. everything. It's like yes. the one thing that everybody has. I it's know. even more core to our being than money. Like, yes. don't, don't waste that shit. It makes me crazy. It makes me crazy. And it makes me feel like the worst thing that I can do to somebody is like mm. the same day cancellation. I would rather go into a coma than have yeah. to cancel on somebody yes. same day. Yes. And sometimes I have to do it. And it makes me mm. so deeply embarrassed that I yes. like am scared to ever talk to them again because I think that they hate me mm. so much. And then I learn that it's not as important <laughs> to them. That's the thing. We think the things that are super important to us, everybody else also holds very dear. And so I will similarly get really anxious or upset or concerned about a thing like that because it matters a lot to me. I have called to express to my friend something like that. This happened recently where I called him and I was like, hey, um, I just want to make sure like that didn't come off in a way that was da da da. And he was like, I don't even remember what you're talking about, Alexis. And I was like, oh, uh, never, never mind. <laughs> I can relate. I can relate. Yeah. It used to be a lot worse with me, but like my default way of operating, hmm. and this is like before going to lots of therapy, was just assuming yeah. that everyone that I've ever met in my life, if yeah. they're not currently speaking to me in this moment, they yeah. probably hate me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's an anxiety a lot of people would relate to. Yeah. Yeah. And not for any particular reason, but it's just the default no. assumption. And now over time, I've realized like, okay, maybe even if like 1% of people that I met hate me for some reason, like that's mm. actually okay. I totally feel you on that being a journey. And also I've made my peace with it. <laughs> yep. So what is something non-work related that you're really proud of? Probably very related to what I just said, mm. that I have done so much work on myself mm. in the last half decade-ish that yes. I wish I'd done earlier. I mean, it's the cliche, right? But I got a therapist. We and love that. I so good. got a therapist when I was 27, I think so mm. five years ago and still work with the same one. Mm. And that's just one little piece in this journey that I've had of, I think there's a type of person who experienced some trauma growing up and their mm -hmm. default way of processing it was actually just being like, oh, I'm fine. And oh, sure. You know, and so I thought I was fine all of my mm. 20s. It's like, I don't even get mad or sad. I am so <laughs> fine, you know, and it's like, oh, no. It's Look actually, at how fine I am. <laughs> I have no emotions. That's how fine yeah. I am. I think my default was just surviving up until mm. that point and, mm -hmm. you know, doing what I could. But once you begin to share your life with other people, you know, it's like yes. I'm married now. I have a kid now. Yeah. I have employees. Like before that, I had coworkers and clients. Yeah. Once you start really having to share your life with other people, you have to confront some things. And for me, it was more just like, why can't I confront anything? Hmm. Why can't I talk to people about mm -hmm. anything hard? And why can't I advocate for myself? And why yeah. can't I literally have any needs of my yeah. own versus 
auto catering to everyone else? And why don't I have any boundaries? Like all these like Hmm. little things that started being like, oh, okay, I guess that's not so productive, huh? Hmm. And I went into it thinking this will make me a better business person, of course, because I I only talk about business, but I realized I basically hit a wall and Mm. I would absolutely not be where I am now if I hadn't have done that work. So that is something that I'm, I'm proud of, but I feel like I'm 20% done. You know, a lot of what you said, oh, why don't I have this? Or why don't I do that? Even just having the awareness to ask yourself those questions, I've been like, huh, well, that's interesting. I totally agree. I love that. Wow. That's awesome. And you know, it's funny. Like, it's funny that you said, oh, I started it because I thought, oh, this will make me better at business. It probably did. Oh my God. I'm sure it made you better in a lot of facets. Yeah. The best investment you could make for all you Silicon Valley types. I know, truly. Yeah. Non-technical, big advocates of therapy on this show. I I believe My mom's a therapist also, so I feel like I'm biased, but yeah. I love that. We love the brain. We love helping the brain. Therapy is like going to the gym, but for your brain, big supporter. Brain gym. Exactly. (laughs) Wait, brain gym? Kind of a good name. Food for thought for later. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm I'm actually very curious to hear what you're going to say to this question because Sonoma sounds really lovely, but if you could pick up your house and literally everything in it, the way it's decorated, all of your furniture, your photos, et cetera, and move it to a different location anywhere in the world, would you? And where would it be? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, it's kind of hard to to talk about this without sounding like a dick, right? Because <laughs> it's like, why would you complain about your vineyard? But sure. like, I think, you know, it's also this kind of like kind of gross misogynistic cliche that mm. a woman's dream would be to end up on a vineyard, you know? Like, yes. Yeah. And it's like, um, no, just because I'm a woman, it doesn't mean that like, that's my life goal. Right. You're not just only wearing beige oversized wool sweaters, sipping tea in the morning. I literally do not own a sundress and I wow. still wear all black all the time. Oh, um, so I, I definitely still stand out. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like the farm is beautiful Mm. and it's been like such a pleasure, like raising our kid on it and having a garden is dope and like having space is awesome. But also you have no friends because you live two miles down a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. You don't have phone service or Internet. There are certain things that Mm. you take for granted that when you lose it, you're like, oh, that's that was really important to me. Like friends and Internet are, are very important for me. The way that I would mitigate that pre-COVID is I was on an airplane all the time. Oh, really? Um, I was either driving to San Francisco Mm -hmm. because I had work to do before COVID and that required me to be other places. So I'd either be in New York or LA or San Francisco and the travel would really help me Hmm. because my happy place, ironically, is kind of being alone in a crowd. Like if Hmm. I could just be walking the streets of Manhattan every day, I would. Yeah. I love that. That's my favorite. Hmm. But being on an airplane's awesome. Yeah. Working from coffee shops and hotel lobbies are awesome. Yes. I'm the same way. I want that. So I miss that a lot. I want to be in all those places. I don't necessarily want to be in one city, but if I could Hmm. get back to where, oh, I'd love to be in San Francisco a lot again and just like eat all the food and sit on hilltops and like be enshrouded in fog. Like that sounds great. And I want to go and walk the streets of Manhattan and like eat all the food there too. And just be part of that energy. Yeah. You're touching on things that are near and dear to my heart, namely sitting and also eating. Mm -hmm. And I also get a lot of work done in coffee shops or I just feel very 
productive there. There's something reassuring to me about the ambient noise of lots of other people around, even if I'm just working solo. And I've always been that way in college and, and afterwards and still. So I miss that. Yeah. To me, it was like, it was a bit of a productivity hack where Mm. there's a tiny bit of accountability that you feel of like, I don't want anyone to look at my screen and see me on like Facebook or something. Like I need to be interesting. And then, Oh yeah. yeah. There's also this kind of deadline you create for yourself of like, when I'm done, I have the option to go. So you have a Mm -hmm. little bit of an incentive to finish something but yes. then you kind of take in that energy of everything going on around you. So yes. you also feel like you socialized and totally and it, all those things felt really good and productive to me. Totally agree. One thing I miss, I think people will find may, I don't know, maybe people will think this is normal or things is strange. I miss all those little mini conversations that I used to have throughout the day, like ordering my coffee and just chatting with the barista briefly or like sitting down next to someone as a seat taken, like all those little touch points. I really miss because even though I spend a lot of my time by myself for my work, a lot of what I do is by myself. Those little moments, <laughs> very key. Oh, yeah. I mean, those little moments shaped my life. Like when I moved to San Francisco in 09, I did not have plans lined up. I just knew I wanted to work on the internet. Oh, really? And I literally Googled coffee shops where techies hang out. And really? Yes. And at the time it was Epicenter, which no longer okay. exists, but it was a yeah, fifth and Folsom right underneath the original Twitter office. And I went and I lived in that coffee shop and I met every barista. I met every regular and let wow. all of them know that I was trying to work on the internet and I had a PR degree. And one of those people introduced me to my first job. And like, no way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of just been my MO forever. Wow. I feel like Twitter, in a way, is kind of that coffee mm-hmm. shop. You can kind of just mm-hmm. hang out mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, yes. throw in yep. a thought or two here and there, but you can kind of just be working on your laptop by yourself and spectate. Mm-hmm. I think just being around has magical powers versus needing to be the one yelling all the time in the room. Just being there has a little mm-hmm. bit of magic. That's a really good point. Sometimes there's also a lot of power in being quiet and listening, I think, in addition to knowing when to talk, almost as important as knowing what to say. I've been doing a lot less talking lately, and I'm not sure why, but I think I'm just Mm. in that phase of like, I think I just want to, I just want to sit and observe for a while. I have less to say right now. Hmm. For what I do, there's a lot of balance finding for me between observing, spectating, processing, and then ultimately producing something that people will enjoy. But it takes a lot of those other activities first before I just open my mouth and see what comes out. Well, that's the irony that I think a lot of people don't realize is people that produce like Mm. 90% of their job is observing because you can't just produce out of a vacuum. (laughs) You know, it's like, I think it's funny because again, people feel like they know me, but they don't. And so whenever I make some big decision Mm. to them, it feels like totally out of the blue. And I'm like, I have literally been thinking Uh about this for years (laughs) and researching it and like building anecdotes that support this decision For what looks like an overnight decision. Even my close friends are surprised sometimes by, um, you know, decisions that kind of look like a big deal. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry, Mm, I haven't been giving you the play by play. But Mm. yes, there's literally years of consideration going into this. Yeah, I'm so impressed by your 
ability to turn that coffee shop scenario into a job. And I feel like I totally get why your high school classmates gave you the superlative of most likely to make a million dollars. They saw it. Maybe. It's funny, though, because to me in high school, I was like a Daria. It's funny because, again, really like therapy is like revealing some things about myself that Mm -hmm. I didn't realize were like, Mm -hmm. I had such a different idea of myself than what I actually portrayed to the world. Hmm. So in my mind, I was like this total loner who was just a sad girl. And like, I knew I was Mm. really smart, but I just felt very isolated. I didn't Mm. have anything in common with anybody. I didn't think that anybody in particular liked me. But when I look back, I actually was part of the popular group. I knew everybody. Really? I it's just funny looking back where I'm like, "Oh, I wow. in my head." And it's true, I did feel totally alone and I I understand why, yeah. but like that was just in my head. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, yeah. I I'm guessing that everybody actually probably thought that I thought I was too good for everybody. And I was just, I was just really Ooh, shy yes. and assumed that no one wanted to know me. Wow. Right. And there's sure. probably a little mm. bit of that that's still true today. Right. Yeah. There are little elements of who I was as a high schooler that I'm very aware of and still I know are with me probably forever, though I was not one of the cool kids. <laughs> So I'd say I probably have that more than... But isn't that ironic? It's like, does it even matter if you don't know it, right? Mm, That's a good point. Wow, yeah. Well, then maybe I was secretly cool. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I just didn't realize. No, I can confirm. It's been confirmed uh, to my face multiple times. So (laughs) we have plenty of of witnesses have confirmed. So Helena, who would play you in a movie about your life? And should this be a biopic or should we focus it on a particular, let's say, year or period of time? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, there was a time when everyone on earth thought I looked like Renee Zellweger. And oh. that hasn't happened as much over the years. But literally when I was waiting tables yeah. every day, someone would be like, uh, has anyone ever told you? And I'm like, mm. that I look like Renee Zellweger. And then Jennifer Lawrence came out. And then uh-huh. everybody was like, yes, oh my totally. God, has anyone ever? And, but I can relate more to Jennifer Lawrence because she okay. just does not seem to care about being like a conventionally, yes. a conventional Hollywood actress. Like she just seems like normal yep. and I'm very into that. that. So mm. I feel like that would make sense to me for a lot of reasons. I would be very flattered to have her play me. Oh yeah. That sounds great. Do you think that we would maybe have to have her go spend some time in Norway to just like kind of learn? And I think she would need to spend some time in Norway and the rural south. And, and the rural south. Go to San Francisco and then maybe a little bit of time in New okay. York. Hang out with my therapist for a few years. Uh, <laughs> our production budget is skyrocketing, just so you know. Okay, love the idea. Consult with the therapist. That sounds like money well spent mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. Love that. Just get right yeah, into it. Yeah, I think there's going to be some some work ahead of her. And then would this be a biopic, like total start to now? Or is there a particular period of time in your life you think would make the most compelling film? You know, it's funny. And this is where I'm like, wow, I'm going to sound like some sort of self-obsessed narcissist person. But like, no, not at all. I asked my whole life is storytelling, right? Like I studied communications in college mm-hmm. and like my whole career, like the thorough, like the thread through all of it is storytelling. Yes. And that's the cliche, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's what I, I've done. So sometimes I joke that, have you ever seen Stranger Than Fiction, that Will Ferrell movie? Uh, oh, I know the plot. 
Yeah. Well, there's like a basic premise that like Will Ferrell has a strange narrator presence that is actively narrating every step of his life. And sometimes I feel a little bit like I have that experience. And it's just kind of always been along there with me. And maybe it's a coping mechanism because I remember when I was Hmm. young and, you know, I was like going through tragedy and I was like, yeah, say I write a memoir one day, then all of this really terrible stuff that's happening to me will just make for a better memoir. And Part and of the so story. I think that's kind of been my coping mechanism for like anything mm. that comes up mm. in my life as some sort of massive obstacle, like even building this company now, like when there's some sort of just insane obstacle or downside or challenge, I'm like, yeah, well, Guy Raz isn't going to just interview somebody who is like, <laughs> yep, it was easy. <laughs> who was like, yeah, and then it all worked yeah, out. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. This wow. is good for the memoir. So I have so many moments like that in my life where yeah. even this company chapter could be its own thing. But yeah, but no, it's definitely sure. like I have thought a lot about, okay, yeah, here's another, here's another chapter hmm. in the memoir. What you're saying is similar to something that I have felt before, which is in the moment when things are really weird or really bad, giving myself the opportunity to zoom out a little bit and seeing how it fits contextually with everything else I've experienced. And then especially when I look back later, just saying like, oh, that really bad thing that was so bad at the time actually led to these three amazing things. So then the next time I encounter a scenario like that, I'm sort of like, huh, I wonder what good things will come out of this. Or at least I try to feel that way. So what's something you're really good at that it would surprise most people to learn about you? I think probably the most surprising was that I was a very, very hardcore competitive piano player. Oh, my God. It sounds kind of funny and corny, but... Wow. Like, it was just one of my random side hustles in school. I started studying when I was, like, three or four, and there happened to be one really amazing, prolific piano teacher in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. Really? Wow. And I, like, just stuck Hmm. with it. And I'm not sure why, because it's not like anyone else I knew was doing anything. Yeah. Like my other friends were getting to like watch movies after school and I would like go home and play piano for four hours a day. Wow. That's a lot of piano. Yeah. But I was really good. Like I was. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I was like at some point I was the North Carolina queen of music. Really? Yeah. What is that? Is that a competition? I don't even know or at like... this point. I competed for it a bun- <laughs> amongst oh a God. bunch of other piano players for a bunch of judges. You were the queen of music. I was the queen of music. Wow. At some point, again, I don't know how they measure this stuff, uh, but I was sure. at some point one of the like top 50 amateur piano players in America. Wow. Oh, my God. funny because I don't play anymore. I, like, I was, I was going to ask if you still play. No, I stopped playing when I was 18. Really? Okay. I I went to college and was like, okay, I got to work in a bar now. So I don't have time to play piano. Do you have a piano with you on the farm, on the ranch? Mm -mm. No. No? No. So here's like the curse, right? And this is a little bit of a a chicken and egg thing, right? Like to be a classically trained piano player, you have to be like an insane perfectionist psycho. Yeah. Because the like to succeed as a classical piano player, you're not improvising. You're not Mm. like some sort of artist generating new work like you're literally copying somebody and you're copying it with perfect precision those were the hobbies that I gravitated towards like I did ballet and I was like on Mm -hmm. the dance team and you just you like replicate something right like any sort of spontaneous improvisation was not my thing so I see and I don't know if 
my perfectionist OCD tendencies allowed me to be very good at piano or if piano turned me into a perfectionist or like, you know, what fed what. And so the problem with that is if you put me next to a piano right now and asked me to even noodle, I'd be like, no. Mm. Or if you asked Uh me to like go play, go try and play a piece, even if I could play it 50% good, that is absolutely tragic. I I don't even (laughs) want to hear myself do it because Hmm. it's not satisfying unless it's 100%. So it probably sounds really great to the people listening though. I don't know about that. I don't know, but I don't even want to, I don't even want to let myself you don't go find there, out. right? I get so that. So for me, it would be like, no, let me lock myself in this room for six months and perfect yep. this piece again, and then I'll play it for you once. I see. And then we'll be done. Wow. Well, Helena, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Sounds good. This episode of Non-Technical is still brought to you by SecureFrame. SecureFrame helps organizations get enterprise ready by streamlining SOC 2 and ISO 27001 compliance so you can get compliant in weeks, not months. SecureFrame believes security should accelerate innovation and growth, and they're on a mission to make the most powerful security simple and accessible for every organization. Not only does SecureFrame help growing companies secure SOC 2 and ISO 27001 compliance, but they'll also help you continuously monitor and maintain it year after year. They'll streamline the process beginning to end, saving you an average of 50% on audit costs and hundreds of hours of time. By partnering with SecureFrame, you'll know what you're getting every step along the way, you'll save time for your team, you'll be able to fix issues quickly with real-time alerts, and get support from real security experts. Their team of compliance experts and auditors are happy to help answer any questions and give you more information. Simply schedule a demo today at secureframe.com. And we're back with Helena Price Hambrecht, the co-founder and co-CEO of House. Helena, we have come to a very exciting time in this episode of Non-Technical, which is the lightning round. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. How do you take it? Oat milk. Oh, yeah? Nice. We love oat milk. Big fan. I love it. I love it so much. Do you have a favorite board game? No. No? Do you have a least favorite board game? No. I actually don't like when my friends get together and play like competitive card games or whatever they do. It gives me a lot of anxiety, which oh, is really? probably something I should talk to my therapist about. Maybe we'll add that to the agenda for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever read a book twice? Oh, yeah. What book? Essentialism. Really? What's that about? It's about saying no to most Ooh, everything. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It describes this kind of paradox where you got to where you are by being opportunistic and saying yes to a lot of things. And it got to a certain place, but now you're successful enough that all these opportunities are coming to you and you want to say yes to all of them, but Mm -hmm. it's causing you to plateau because you're saying yes to all these opportunities that you wouldn't have necessarily chosen for yourself. And for you to continue to move forward in life, you have to learn to say no to a lot of things. And it's a very important book. I've read it like five times. Yeah, that sounds I feel like everyone should read that. That sounds great. I want to order a copy right now. Mm -hmm. Do you have a pump up song? Oh, pop that by French Montana. (laughs) Right there immediately. No question. (laughs) Yeah, I would wake up to it every morning. I should probably set it. It was my alarm. Yes. And finally, what would you title your memoir? I actually have a working title, which is why I cannot share it with you. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm devastated. Can you tell me the theme, maybe? Or a word that 
evokes the feeling. Right now, it is about realizing that the lens in which I viewed myself and my life mm. was broken <gasps> and flawed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to sit with that and think about what it could be called. <laughs> Wow. Helena, thank you so much for joining me on Non-Technical today. Where can people find more about you? I am on the internet in places. If you want to buy the booze that I make, go to drink.haus, drink.house. You can find me tweeting occasionally at twitter.com slash Helena, H-E-L-E-N-A. Amazing. And you can find me at Yay Alexis Gay on Twitter and Instagram or at non-technicalpod on Twitter. Helena, this has been such a pleasure getting to know more about you and learning about your life. And I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 